The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Interesting, when I uh, talk with people, um, I kind of freak people out sometimes because, you know, typically you ask people the question, they come to you and say, hey, how are you? Uh, and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I've, I've strayed away from asking the question, how are you? And I've tried to get into uh, the habit of asking people, hey, how's your heart? And if you ever have someone ask you that, you're like, how's my heart? What do you mean? Do I have, what do you mean, how's my heart? And um, for me, it's a very important question because how you answer that question is very actually telling of what's happening in your life. Typically, when someone asks you, how are you? What do you do? You ask, well, hey, this is what's going on at work. You give them a list of things you're doing that don't necessarily actually communicate how you are. We just give a resume, so to speak, of I've been doing this and I've been doing this. And usually we want to impress people and we're like, well, gosh, I've been so busy, which is code for I'm an important person. Uh, that's why I'm so busy. Um, but as I've been um, thinking over the last few years of how do you engage people, uh, and a good way to engage people is just to ask them this question of, hey, how is your heart? There's a great Proverbs, um, uh, chapter 4, uh, I think it's verse 23. Do we have that? Proverbs 4, uh, 23. Let me, Jenny, with me? There you go. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So it's a pretty appropriate question to ask is, how is your heart? The Bible makes pretty clear that your heart's a big deal. And if you have a heart problem, it's going to show up in how you live. And uh, tonight, this is going to be the theme or the question that I'm going to be seeking to hammer home. And uh, I hope you leave uh, really wrestling with this. How is my heart? If If the heart is the wellspring, the core of who I am, Uh, then I better have a good understanding of how I actually answer that question. And it's not only doing some self-examination of how is my heart. uh, It's a question that says, what do I really want the condition of my heart uh, to be? I love that proverb, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring uh, of life. Uh, If you have a Bible, we're walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're in a series right now called Jesus. And uh, we're at track 18. And uh, tonight I'm going to do something a little bit backwards. Uh, Tonight we have a lot of text to cover. So I'm going to fly through uh, some of these things because uh, typically we take three or four weeks to walk through one chapter. Not so much tonight. We're going through an entire chapter uh, in chapter 7. And I want to jump to the end of chapter 7. And I want to introduce you to two people. And as you hear their stories, we'll take one story at a time. Uh, I want you to have in the back of your mind, uh, what is the condition of that person's heart? And by the way, if you really want to know right away what the condition of a person's heart is, you just have to look at their actions and their attitudes. You just have to look at how that person lives. If you really want to know how your heart is, just ask yourself a question. What happens when uh, you get squeezed? What happens like when the pressure of life is squeezing you, uh, metaphorically, what comes out? You squeeze a toothpaste uh, tube, toothpaste comes out. When you get squeezed, what is the stuff 
that actually comes out of you? Is it things like anxiety and fear and anger? How about when you get tipped over unexpectedly or expectedly? What happens when your life literally is standing straight up and you just you fall? You get tipped over. What comes out of you? How about when you're just in the silence? It's just you. Like you're by yourself. No one, you're in your room all by yourself. It's quiet. What is the sound that could be heard coming from your heart? And again, anxiety, fear, confusion, doubt, hurt, pain, unforgiveness, anger, bitterness. So it's a really big deal what we're talking about tonight uh, because the condition of your heart will really dictate the condition of your life. And so as I read these stories in uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 7, I want you to ask the question, uh, what's the condition of this woman's heart? We're going to look at a mom and her plea for her daughter, and then we're going to look at some friends who had a heart uh, for their friend. I'm going to start in uh, chapter 7, verse 24. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek uh, born in uh, Syriana, Phoenicia, and she begged Listen to this. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Verse 27. Listen carefully. Yes, uh, uh, verse 27. First, this is Jesus' response. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. I'll explain that in a second, but it is what you probably are thinking it is. Yes, Lord, she replied. Yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed. And the demon was gone. Okay, so... Is anyone offended when you hear that story? Like, does it irk anyone? This woman who's got, obviously, a love, a compassion uh, for her daughter who is suffering uh, at the hands of an unclean spirit, meaning a demon, she comes to Jesus, places herself, positions herself in a place of humility, and is begging him. And Jesus calls her a dog? Like, is he having, is like Jesus having, like Jesus Christ, is he having like an unchristlike moment? Like, did he stop and be like, wow, did I really just say that? Uh, take back, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you a dog. I want you to know this is what Jesus called this woman a dog. This is not like a metaphor. This is not, this is he's looking at this woman and says, children first and then dogs. Okay, so as we look at this response, this question, she comes to him in absolute humility, and Jesus just immediately insults her and then tries to dismiss her. Like, is this the Jesus you know? I mean, Jesus would never say something like that, right? He would never say something that would offend somebody. 
mean, we think of this, the meek and mild, and uh, why would Jesus say this? His response, verse 27, first, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs, okay? So two things that are happening real quick there is Jesus is making very clear that there is a priority in God's kingdom, that God had selected, God had chosen the nation of Israel. They were known as the children of God, and the Jewish nation had preference over Gentiles, meaning you, meaning me. If you don't come from a Jewish background, we're considered Gentiles. And secondly, yes, this was an insult. This was not a term of affection like Snoopy. You know, this wasn't like this cute little lab in the corner, like, you're so cute like that little dog over there. No. This was, we don't, like dogs didn't sleep on people's beds like they do ours. Okay, we didn't, we spend thousands of dollars to have surgeries on our dog. I mean, I understand it because I was one who did that, but that's not what the culture of the day was like. So have you ever had someone insult you? I mean, just like pretty hardcore, pretty blatant in your face, just insulted you. They, they took a shot at your personhood. They took a shot at your character, your integrity. I'm not even talking about if it was true or not, but I'm just saying, have you ever had someone come after you and absolutely just insult you? Well, how did you respond when someone took a crack at you, at your character, at your personhood? Uh, how did you respond to what they said? Did you fight back? Did you defend yourself? Did you throw back, so to speak? Did you have words like coming out of your mouth and like, oh, I've got something to say to you now that you bring up character and integrity? What was your response when someone insulted you? I love this woman's response to Jesus. She's quick, she's funny, she's bold, she's humble, and she is the only individual in all of Scripture who actually argued with Jesus and won. I want you to catch this. This is, she is the only person who actually argues with Jesus, and she actually wins the argument. Her response, yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It seems like we get offended at like, how could he possibly say something like this to this woman? But it doesn't seem like this woman is at all put off. It doesn't seem that she is at all annoyed or frustrated with what Jesus said. It's almost she gets it. She says, yeah, first to the people of Israel, then to the Gentiles. No problem. I get that. Israel has preference over the Gentiles. I'm okay with that. The children, they should eat first, meaning the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they should go first. I'm okay with that. She didn't seem to have a, a problem with preference or priority that she was going to be second. What's really interesting is she's like the only woman who gets Jesus. Like the Pharisees, the religious leaders, rulers of the day, they're like, what is he talking about? The disciples, like the men who were following Jesus around, they're utterly confused half the time as to what Jesus is saying. But yet this woman, a pagan Greek woman, comes, is insulted, is offended, and she says, yeah, I get it. I get it. And she comes to him almost actually in the posture uh, of a dog. She comes begging for food from Jesus. And I don't mean physical food. And it's almost like she's saying to Jesus, I don't need much. I'd be happy with just a crumb. Because a crumb coming from the person of Jesus will make all of the difference that 
I need in my daughter's life. This woman's response was not one of she was just all embittered and she just wanted to fly off the handle. Like, who are you to talk to me like that? Forget it. I didn't even want your help anyways. Her response initially is, yes, Lord. And I appreciate how she didn't take no for an answer. She could have just walked away and be like, well, that didn't really go as well as I was hoping it was going to go. She came back with a very quick, clever, witty, humble, bold, courageous line. Ah, but yes, even there's some crumbs left over for the dogs. So the bottom line here is for Jesus, he was absolutely blown away by what this woman's response was. Then he told her, verse 29, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. I love that Jesus doesn't even need to be present. Like he can just speak a word, your daughter's healed. She is set free. She's released. The location is miles and miles away. And he just speaks a word. I wonder what it was like for this woman as she was traveling home. Wow, is this really going to work? Is my daughter actually going to be healed? And in verse 30, it says she went home, found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Imagine the conversation that she has with her daughter like, uh, mom, um, seemed to be better. I was just kind of lying here in my bed, minding my own business. And all of a sudden, that demon that had been attacking me, it seems to be all gone. Mom, how did this happen? I'm better. Well, mom says, I asked Jesus to help me. Daughter says, well, what did he say? Well, Jesus called me a dog. Well, mom, what did you say? I said, yes, okay. And then what did Jesus say? Well, that you're going to get better. Like, it's almost comical how this interaction went uh, with Jesus. But a few things, again, I want you to, I'm going to go through the story quick, but what do you learn about this woman's heart? I'll give you five. She's humble, bowed at his feet. She came empty-handed. She came begging. She's humble. She's got wisdom. She gets it. When Jesus speaks to her about the children and then the dogs, she's like, I understand. Israel is God's chosen people. I'm okay with that. She's got wisdom. She's got courage. A woman should not have been coming to Jesus in the privacy of someone else's home, breaking all sorts of social standards, breaking all sorts of gender barriers. She has got courage. And then I love this. She's got a deep love for her daughter. Like, she would not be deterred. I don't care what you say to me, Jesus. I'm here because I know you can make a difference. And I love my daughter so much that you can say whatever you want, but I'm sticking here at your feet until you move on behalf of my daughter. And then she's got faith. Notice when Jesus says, go, she goes. It wasn't like, hey, can you come with me just in case it doesn't work? Like, just make the trip with me, and if it doesn't work, you could put your finger on her, then she'll be better. She had faith to see, wow, Jesus is, making, is going to make a difference, and she believed. What resides in your heart will surface in how you respond and how you react to people. I just picked five. Humility, wisdom, courage, love, and faith. What is residing in your heart? It will show up in how you respond and how you react to people, especially when they push that button. 
especially when they insult you, especially when they come after you. A heart with humility, wisdom, courage, love, and faith is able to say, yep, and not swing back. Story number two. This is Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There were some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. And after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit, and he touched the man's tongue. Okay, I have to say, I mean, this is like total house moment. Like, this is what house would do. Like, let me put my finger in your ear, let me spit and play with it, you'll be healed. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Epita, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Some people brought this man who was deaf and who could not speak to, the, to, to Jesus. We did this a couple, um, now it's been months because it was all the way back in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 2 where there were some friends who loved their friend enough to dig a hole in some other guy's roof, lower him down just so he could have an audience with Jesus. We're seeing this very same thing again. Do you have friends like this? Do you have friends who will take you to the place you need to go? Whether it's digging a hole for you or leading you to the place you need to go. I love that this man had friends enough to say, you need to go to Jesus. He's in town We'll lead you there. We'll take you there. I was thinking about this, these, this picture of these friends. We have a woman who begged Jesus. We have these friends who begged Jesus. When is the last time you begged for anything? Not for yourself, but for someone else. I was honestly hard-pressed to think of a moment in time in recent past years where I was literally on my knees begging someone for something on behalf of someone else. I can think that I do that in prayer, but that's usually by myself when no one's watching. Has there ever been a point in time where you begged? I mean, you're on your knees. Completely humbling, but also humiliating yourself and saying you have to do something. You have to do something. What's living in this woman's heart, this mom's heart, these friends' heart? They begged Jesus to do something. I love his response. He took them aside, away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into... I mean, this is like the divine wet willy. This man's ears are literally plugged. He cannot hear a thing. Can you imagine? He didn't know this at the time. But seeing Jesus, thinking, my goodness, the Son of God just placed his fingers in my ear. Divine spit. And by the way, this sounds freaky to us, uh, like spit, saliva, uh, 
in first century was believed to have some medicinal value, some medical value. And Jesus grabs hold of this guy's tongue. What's really ironic is that this guy is uh, deaf, he can't hear. He's a mute, meaning he can't speak. And when Jesus heals him, the first voice he hears is Jesus saying, don't talk. It's almost like the guy could have been like, I had that one down before I met you. (laughs) Jesus looks at him, heals him, sets him free completely, and then says, don't talk. But what was in this man's heart was an overwhelming joy of how could I not go and proclaim and tell everyone what has just happened? He couldn't shut up. No matter how many times he and his friends were told, they could just not stop talking. Has that ever happened to you where something so God-amazing has happened? You're like, I just can't stop talking about this. What's, I'll be honest with you. I think of times that that's happened, but I think of also times where something in the sports world, I couldn't stop talking about it. National Championship 2002, I was there. Ohio State, triple overtime. I could not stop talking about the most amazing game I'd ever seen. Why is it that I sell myself short and settle for something that is ultimately not that amazing, and that's what I find myself talking about? This man and his friends see Jesus, the Son of God, act on their behalf, and they just can't stop talking about it. What resides in your heart, it's going to surface in how you react and how you respond, uh, especially to the needs of others. When someone comes to you and says, I have this need, it's a financial need, it's a physical need, it's a relational need, it's an emotional need, it's a spiritual need. If there is any ounce of compassion in your heart when that person comes to you, say, okay, I'm there. I'll take you where you need to go. What resides in your heart will show up. Now we go backwards. We've got the story of a mom. We've got the story of some friends. What was in their heart was revealed in what they did. It was revealed in their actions. It was revealed in their attitudes and their responses. It was revealed in what they did for their friend. So I can honestly say what we know of these people, what was in their heart was good. There was grace, compassion, faith, love, mercy. And when they saw Jesus do what Jesus did, there was just joy overwhelming. They could not stop talking. Now we finish with story number three, and we go back to the beginning of chapter seven, where we meet a group of men who at best are just a men, a group of men who are ultimately pretty far from God. Mark chapter seven, starting at uh, uh, verse one. It says this, the Pharisees, we have not seen the Pharisees in like the last few months in our calendar. They have not really been around since chapter 3. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That means unwashed. Then in parentheses, verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Mark is giving us some 
commentary on what's happening here in the story. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Verse 5, And so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Okay, just so you know, this is not like these guys are are hyper, like, they're not Seinfeld, okay? They're not like germ freaks. This is not a question of like, well, you have to wash your hands because your hands are dirty and we don't want to get dirt in your food because we care about you. This was a sign of moral purity. And so what they're looking at Jesus and his disciples, they're asking the questions, why don't your guys do it like we do it? Because on the outside, we've got it going on. We're morally pure. Look at us. We wash our pots and pans and kettles. We wash our hands. We're meticulous with this. Why? Because we want everyone to know how holy we are. This is the tradition that the elders had established. They want to ask Jesus, why aren't you like us? Why aren't you as holy as we are? And, well, I love that Jesus' response to these guys found in verse 7, starting in verse 6, actually. I love that Jesus hears their question, completely disregards it, as if I'm, I'm not even interested in your question. It's a bad question. So let me just jump to the heart of the matter with where you guys actually are. And if you thought that Jesus was harsh with this woman, this Greek pagan woman, referring her to, referring to her as a dog, how about this? Try this on for size. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men. He goes on, you've let go. He doesn't like give him a break. No chance to respond like, that's not us. He keeps going. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. What happens when you discover you've just become the person that you promised you'd never become? What happens when your eyes are opened and you realize everything you had worked so hard not to be like, you didn't want to be like this person, someone points out to you that you're actually that person. To look at an elder or a Pharisee and say, hey, I'm going to quote Isaiah, and you know actually this passage very well. So well that you guys have positioned yourself as you would never want to be the fulfillment of that prophecy where it says, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts. The Pharisees did not want to be like that. And so they set up all these rules and traditions to protect their piety, to just show the world and God how pure, how awesome they were. And in a moment, Jesus says, you're them. You are them. The response must have been like, it's not possible. We have done everything in our entire life to make sure we wouldn't be like Isaiah. Not Isaiah the prophet, but what Isaiah had prophesied about. This is the person who looks at other Christians and says, 
I don't want to be a Christian because they're all judgmental, selfish, self-centered hypocrites. And then somewhere, somewhere along the way, someone comes to that person and says, that's you. What happens when you become that person, that man or that woman, where someone points out to you what is apparent to the rest of the world, but is not apparent to you? We all have blind spots. For the Pharisees, this was an incredible blind spot. They thought they had their stuff together. And Jesus comes along and says, you're a hypocrite. You do a lot of good things, but your hearts are so far from God. How would you respond if that's what Jesus is saying to you? Man, you got it going on on the outside. You raise your hands in worship. You pray when it's appropriate to pray. You read your Bible. But you know what? Your heart is far from God. Those are just traditions that you're following to make sure that everyone else around you thinks that you have the appearance that you're morally pure. You're clean, as the language uh, that the Pharisees uh, would use. A hypocrite's a play actor. That's what that word actually just, if uh, you look at how you define what a hypocrite is. It's someone who would take the stage and play a part. So when someone calls a Pharisee, uh, Jesus calls them Pharisees hypocrites. He's, you're playing a part, guys. You're just playing a part. As the audience changes, so does your dress. It's just play acting. I'll be honest with you and say I've struggled with that for, I'm 36 years old and a better part of my life has been spent trying to keep up appearances rather than to seek actual inner transformation that Jesus brings. And honestly, some of you might be struggling with that very thing right now and you've been struggling with it your entire life. We don't like the word hypocrite, so try play acting on for size. As your audience changes, so does your attire. And it's just about appearances. And the danger in play acting, let me go on and and read the rest of these verses. It says, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. When you look at just the grammatical structure here, Jesus is being pretty passionate. He's not being like very passive, like, you know, I've noticed. He kind of said, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on you. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Jesus is full force here. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father, honor your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother would be put to death. That's actual Deuteronomy law. But you say that if a man, he's going to give an example that's very real. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin. Okay? This might be an odd term. Uh, Kids were responsible to take care of their parents. As the parents would age, it would be the responsibility of the sons and the daughters to come alongside and help provide for their parents in old age. What these elders, these Pharisees had established was something called Corbin. And so kids would go up to their moms and dads and say, you know what, 
everything that I had set aside to give to you, it's now Corbin. I'm dedicating it to God. So good luck to you. You're on your own. And the traditions of men were, they didn't actually have to follow through and give something. It was just that they would make an initial promise of, I'm going to do this. So that was their legal scriptural loophole to get out of honoring their father and their mother. And Jesus is saying, your traditions have neglected the word of God. That's what Corbin means. And uh, verse, uh, I don't even know where we are, verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Okay, this is very strong language to the Pharisees. What lives in your heart will show up in how you live. What ultimately resided in the hearts of the Pharisees was showing up in the way they lived. And as I started to mention the danger of these Pharisees, the language Jesus used, they let go of the word of God. They set aside the word of God. They nullified the word of God by how they lived. Everything by what they were doing was basically saying, we don't care what scripture says. We don't care about God's word because our word is better. They let go, they set aside, they nullified the word of God by how they lived. As I think about the Pharisees, I'm just asking myself the question, what does God really care about? Because these guys thought they were doing the right thing. And somewhere, somewhere along the line, and this is what Jesus does, is forcing them to ask the question, just stop for a minute and ask yourself the question, what does God value most? What really matters most to God? And if they would have thought long enough about that answer or that question, the answer that they would have come up with is, God cares about the heart. God does not care about the exterior performance. He cares about the internal, the heart, because if you get this right, the exterior will show as it did with this, the mother and as it did with these three friends. He doesn't even give the Pharisees an opportunity to respond. What he does now is he turns to the audience. And I love what Jesus does. He wants the audience to know the Pharisees don't get it. They've led you astray to think that if you have it externally, performance-driven, you're clean on the outside, you're okay. And Jesus wants to make clear uh, to Uh, The crowd, in verse 14, he says this, Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me. This is Jesus' way of saying, Please, I am petitioning you. Pay attention. Do not not tune out. Listen to what I'm about to say. Everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. It's as simple as Jesus saying, listen, it's not what goes into you that's going to make you unclean. It's what's coming out of you. It's what's in your heart is going to make you unclean. Now Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes off with his disciples. Verse 17, after he had left, okay, this is like a one sermon message. If you just looked at verse 15, it's just one simple point. It's not what goes in that makes you unclean. It's what, the, it's what comes out. Simple as that. I'm pretty sure everyone here is like, okay, I think I get that. 
It's not what I put in, it's what's coming out. I get it. He goes to his disciples, and these guys, they don't get it. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Okay, if you didn't think Jesus was offensive enough, calling the woman the dog, looking at the Pharisees and being like, you're play actors, you're nothing but hypocrites. You're the guys you didn't want to become. You've become those guys. He looks at his disciples and says this, are you so dull? This is a very nice way of, are you stupid? Do you really not understand? What don't you get about what I've said? Like the passion in Jesus is rising. What don't you understand, disciples? That you, are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man, he's going to explain it in as clear layman's terms as he can. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. Okay, this is Jesus keeping it clean, so will I. What goes into you, into your stomach, into a toilet? I'm not sure what's so confusing about that, disciples. You have to understand the culture, though, that they lived in, the world that they lived in, everything, the Pharisees, the leaders, they were telling them, no, it's all about uh, what you're putting in. It's all external. That's why there is some great confusion here. Jesus goes on. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. Listen to this list. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It's absolutely amazing when you read that list that that can come out of your heart that that can come out of my heart. And if you're to do a heart check, some of us, if not a majority of us, that is actually what's spewing out of our hearts. I read it again. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. As you listen to uh, that list uh, that Jesus gives, by the way, there's no list of preference or priority. Jesus is just chalkboarding a list of things that the human heart produces. As you listen to that list, is there anyone here, honestly, who would be like, awesome, sign me up. Fill my heart with sexual immorality. Fill my heart with folly. Fill my heart with evil thoughts. Like, is there anyone who would actually say, sign me up for that life? That's the life I want to live. That's the heart I want to have. I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think anyone would say, yeah, that's exactly what I want my heart to be like. What comes out of a man's heart is very revealing of the heart condition. And... I hope we can be honest, and you can at least be honest with yourself and be honest before God uh, enough to say that all of our hearts are inclined towards all of these things. And 
in reality, it's only because of Jesus who reaches down into the depths of sinful humanity's hearts and can redeem hearts that are bent on evil thoughts, sexual immorality, greed, and malice, and folly. All of our hearts, we need to own up to that. All of our hearts are bent on that. And it's only because of the person of Jesus that he can redeem our hearts. How do you get that heart? How do you get the heart that's not the list that Jesus gave? How do you have a heart that's not just actually refurbished? Not taking damaged goods and like putting a few band-aids on it. Like how do you get that heart that actually forgiveness? When someone wrongs you, it's, you don't even blink an eye. You don't bat an eye, it's forgiveness comes. How do you have that heart, that generosity? Yeah, I'll give. I'd love to give. What do you need? I love meeting those needs. What can I do? How do you get the heart that is just filled with compassion? Where you see a brother or you see a sister in need and your heart is overwhelmed with a sense of compassion. How do you have that heart that's just filled with love? You look at what everyone else has deemed unlovely and you say, no, 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 no. I will love that person. Like, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of heart I long for. That's the heart that I pray that Jesus continues to pour into me. You have a choice. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft and murder and adultery and greed, deceit, lewdness, envy. Or you can say, you know what? No more. No more. Fill it with forgiveness. Fill it with joy. Fill it with peace. Fill it with generosity. Tonight, as um, uh, we would just close uh, and enter into a time of worship, do you know the condition of your heart? It took Jesus pointing out to the Pharisees their condition, and it was messed up. They chose not to repent of their religiosity and continue in their path that was bent on killing Jesus. Do you know the condition of your heart enough to say, you know what, I know it's messed up, and I know I need Jesus to breathe new life into this heart of mine. One of my favorite uh, psalms, and there's 150 of them, is Psalm 51, verse 10. And it simply says this. It says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. What I love most about that verse is it recognizes that God can create it confesses that God can take something that's broken, something that's just even missing, and it's a prayer that says, God, will you create in me a new heart? Tonight, if you're here and you've not made a decision, if you're not a Christian, if you've not trusted Jesus, and your heart is pounding within you saying, I don't want to be that man, I don't want to be that woman that's just filled with lust, and pride, and hate, and I don't want to be that person. Your step, your decision that you need to make tonight is to be born again. Jesus, give me a brand new heart. New creation. That's your decision. Jesus, I want to be born again, not physically, but spiritually. 
a new man, a new woman where you place a brand new heart within me. And you know what? That's what he does. No one else does that. Jesus can take a sinful heart and redeem it into a heart that's growing in holiness and purity and obedience, courage and faith and compassion and grace and love. If you've not made that decision, make it tonight. I would challenge you even so much to say, why wouldn't you? Why would you want to continue on the path of having a heart that ultimately is just hard? Hard towards God, hard towards humanity. Confess, I've got a heart that's sinful, and I need Jesus to give me a new heart. Some of you have made that decision to actually, and you've been walking with Jesus, but you're hearing these things tonight, and your heart is, if, if your actions and your attitudes, your responses reveal your heart, you're like, wow, I've got some serious heart issues. Pray Psalm 51. Because God can take whatever your heart sinful condition is and create something brand new. Let me pray and uh, invite us to stand in a moment uh, just to respond to what God is doing. And we're going to do that tonight through worship and communion. But as we would sit and enter into worship and prepare ourselves to the Lord's table, what is your heart condition? Jesus knows what it is. Born again, create in me a new heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you can see into the depths of all of our hearts and see the mess, see the sin, see the our hearts that are just bent on everything that is against you. And you still love us. What an amazing God you are. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that in this place tonight, there would be surgery taking place at a spiritual level of hearts that are being born for the first time and a a people that are crying out, create in me a new heart, a heart that would know how to love and forgive and serve and care. God, please, Only you can do that, and I pray, I'm begging that you would. God, I pray for this community, that we would come to you in all humility, confessing that our hearts are bent on sin. We would repent of that, repent of religiosity, and turn to you. Give us these new hearts that we long for. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.